Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. And I begin to read at verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he will grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, and to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Well, God willing, we shall be looking at these verses probably until verse 19 for this week. And my title for this morning's message is The Immeasurable Love of Christ. The Immeasurable Love of our Saviour for His people. How can we talk about it? How can we use words to express it, friends? What Christ's love means to us? How can we quantify it? We can't. Paul's going to tell us. We can try. We can know a little bit of it. but We can never know it in a full measure. But we'll come to that uh, in a minute. Here in verse 14 is where we begin. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is picking up, as we said last week, from verse 1, where he intended uh, to, uh, to start and say these things, but he went off on that digression. Verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And something came to his mind, and he went off for the next 13 verses to tell us how God had prepared him and God had used him to bring this message of, and to make known uh, this mystery. What mystery was that? The mystery of Jews and Gentiles belonging now to one church. The saved Jews, the saved Gentiles, uh, elevated to this position. Equal footing uh, that is now between Jews and Gentiles. What an encouragement this would have been to these Ephesian believers there in Asia Minor. So Paul now returns to his theme in verse 14, for this cause, uh, for the, what cause is he uh, referring to? Well, the fact that these believers are now part of the church, that these Ephesians are now fully-fledged members of the church. So he's going to intercede for them, and he's going to pray especially uh, for them, and he's going to give us five things that he mentions uh, that he is praying for them. He already prayed for them in chapter 1, we saw, for their enlightenment, they may come to understand the things of God in a better way, a clearer way, and the hope that, they, that, that God has put into their hearts, and that inheritance prepared for them. Now he's going to pray some other things. He's always got so much to pray for uh, the believers, so many ways in which he wants them to advance, ways in which he wants them to be encouraged. These things are ever upon his heart and his mind for Christians. But he says here, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bowing his knees. Oh, friends, that's the Christian, that's a Christian attitude, isn't it? Only a Christian has come, really, to bow the knees to the Savior. Only the Christian bows, only the Christian has come to recognize that he is a creature 
that he is not somebody great, that there is somebody who is greater than him in the world. This is not the world's philosophy. The world's philosophy is somewhat different. You have a right to do whatever you want to, to do, to be whatever you want to be. You're like a mini-god, they would say. It's up to you. Don't bow down to anyone. Uh, you're, you're your own boss. I saw this T-shirt, this slogan on a T-shirt which encapsulates this. Somebody's teach that my life, my rules. My life, my rules. That's it, isn't it? That's the way of the world things. It's my life. I can do what I like. I'm not going to allow anyone to dictate to me my, my preferences. Let me do what I, I choose. But when you become a Christian, it all changes. And you realize there is somebody greater than you. You realize your smallness. And when you come especially before the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, you feel I can only bow down before him. And this is what God does uh, in our hearts. We come before him uh, in lowliness. Now, Paul says he bows his knees. And most likely, this is something that he actually did on a daily basis. He knelt in prayer. I'm sure he didn't do it all the time, but he was often, I, I, I think, on his knees. Although the common way of praying in those times was standing. But here he says, I bow my knees. It may help us to when we come before God in prayer, if we're able, if we've uh, got the strength to do it, we're not too ill to do it, if we're able to uh, get down on our knees, there is some help in that. There's no command in the Bible to say, you have to do it. You can stand if you like, you can sit. David sat before the Lord, and it's, it's entirely up to you in a sense. It's, you're at liberty to choose. But something happens in this. It's, we said last week, we need all the helps to humility that we can, can, get, can grasp at. And here is one, to get down on our knees alone before God. It sort of helps us in a physical way. But there's no uh, compulsion. There's no necessity uh, for doing that. You won't earn extra brownie points with God for doing that because we, it's all of grace. But uh, we come before God uh, in this way. Bowing before him teaches us reverence. Reminds us that God is reverent, that the God we serve is holy. And we come before him remembering that, that he is great. He is the almighty. And I'm small, but am I in comparison to him? He is the creator. I am the, the uh, creature. And that reverence that we have in, in, in private before God, we will carry it in life. We will carry it into the church. And, and into the church where we, where we are, we'd want reverent worship also in the church. And friends, we have to say this again, but how horrific it is when we see some of the worship that is going on in churches today. We don't see reverent worship for God. We, see, we don't see people bowing down before God and recognizing uh, His greatness. We see more as a concert-style worship, people jumping up and down, up and down, bobbing uh, to, to rhythmic music. Well, friends, where is the reverence gone? It's gone from so many places. Not all, thankfully, but in so many, uh, uh, the common way it seems today is uh, people jumping to, up and down to a beat. But friends, for us, we maintain this reverence and must jealously guard individually and as a church uh, this uh, awe, awe that we, we have of our God. But we don't come to him only as a king. We remember also that he is our father. Uh, we bow our knees unto the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he is a great king, but we remember also 
that He is our Father through Christ. And so we try and come to that balance. We try and maintain that balance between somebody who is, uh, uh, we had that reverence for God, and yet at the same time we have that uh, familiarness with the Lord. We are His child and we can speak freely in and before Him. Verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whole family, that's the theme on his mind, uh, the saved Jews and the saved Gentiles, and also this additional thought that the believers who are now in heaven, as well as those who are in, uh, on, on the earth, those who are alive uh, here now, the whole family, the whole body of Christians. This is uh, the one thing also this whole family has in common. They all share the family name of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We're all named after the name of our Savior Christ. You're a Christian. That's our name. You could say that's our surname. We are Christians. Oh, friends, we should be so careful to protect the family name. If we behave badly before the world, well, the, we bring that name into disrepute. We dishonor the God whom we serve. Already we have so much, isn't it, in the world to contend with. So many things people say against Christians. All Christians are hypocrites, they say. It's not true, but that's what people come up with and, and say against us. It's a jibe that is often used. They see the hypocritical behavior of a few, and they tar everyone with the same brush. Sometimes you can't blame them, because you see some of the things that, that, uh, that come into the news, the publicized sexual scandals in the churches, the financial scandals that come in, that plague the churches. But when they see these things, they think, oh, everyone in the church is like that. Everyone is a hypocrite. Well, we, we do not want them to think that. We want to take that armor away from them, out of their hands as much as we can. So we remember, wherever I am, wherever God has placed me, and I'm in the home or in the office or in the school, I'm a Christian. I bear the family name. I represent my God. I don't want any to bring his name into uh, disrepute. And then in verse 16, he, he goes into his first petition. So verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And this first petition is for strength to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Paul's first prayer for them is that God would grant according to the riches of His glory, that is, His unlimited, infinite resources that He has, strength to be able to stand. The Ephesians, well, they're going to have a tough time. There are troubles already for them in life. Life is already full of troubles. No one can escape trouble, whoever you are. Uh, we are born unto trouble, as Job said. But uh, the Christian, he's going to have more troubles. These Ephesian believers, they're going to have more pressures put upon them than others because they're going to have to face, to stand for the Lord in the midst of an idolatrous city where they were given over to the worship of Diana. And also we see uh, how if you wanted... Uh, to, to have a, a job as a tradesman, well, you had to belong to those trade guilds. And those trade guilds also uh, meant you would have to compromise on your faith. 
and you'd have to uh, partake in idolatrous things. And so, as a true Christian, you needed strength. You needed strength to come out from those trade guilds and trust the Lord to provide for you. If you lose your job, it's very hard, very difficult, very challenging for the believers at that time. And so, they needed strength to face trials, temptations. It's unavoidable. God, uh, Paul prays that God would strengthen them internally by His Spirit for those trials. Ephesians 6 and verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Strength to stand, that's what we need. Strength not to give way. We often maybe pray, Lord, take away this trial. Lord, take away this person. He's needling me. He's troubling me. He's causing me such pain. Take him away. Change my circumstances, Lord. Maybe the Lord wants us rather to go through it so that we may be, become stronger believers uh, in, in him. And he will give us the strength to endure and to overcome and the grace uh, to bear with it. Young people need strength these days, isn't it? feel for our young people and all the pressures that are upon them. So many pressures coming from all different sides. Peer pressure is one of them. Classmates maybe put pressure on them to do things against their conscience. Maybe uh, to watch an inappropriate movie, uh, for instance, and they need the strength to say no and to come away from that. Society is bullying people, isn't it, into embracing new views on sex and being open about sexual views and, and marriage and so on. Well, these, the, the whole society, the education system, teachers and friends maybe will come down and put pressure on us and on our young people to conform. You must follow the same way of thinking that your friends are doing. It's hard. But they, they need the strength also to say no, to hold their ground. They will hold to biblical values. Principle living. That's what we need, friends. Principle living. We know our principles. We know that they're biblical. They're based on the Word of God. And we need the strength to hold on to it and stand to it and say, Lord, help me. But we all need, friends, this strength in the inner man to pursue such kind of living. It's often, often the case, somebody asks you to, to lie for them. What would you do? Somebody asks you to tell a fib. Or just say to the boss, I'm not in. Or this and this happened. And what would you do? You need strength as a believer to say, I can't do that. I can't lie. In some countries, it's very difficult to be an accountant, a Christian accountant. Because there, it's in, in some countries, it's common for people to cook the books, to change the figures. And so, very hard, you, you go into accountancy, what do you do? Your boss says, change these figures. We didn't earn so much, make it less, so that they can earn extra money. Not earn, but gain extra money, profits. Well, friends, the Christian needs such strength, isn't it, to say no. What about the Lord's Day? The Lord's Day, somebody calls you on the Lord's Day, somebody's planning, they've got some event happening, oh, it's a get-together. Maybe family, friends, people you like. Oh, you want to be there. You, you really want to go. But it clashes with the worship of God. It clashes with meeting, on the, with meeting with the Lord on His day. 
what shall I do? But if you have your principles, friends, you're in place, you and pray, the Lord will give you strength to say, no, I must honor the Lord. He comes first uh, in, in these things. So this is uh, one, the, Paul's first petition, strength in the inner man. And then secondly, in verse 17, excuse me, 17, fellowship with Christ, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Why is Paul praying that? Isn't, these are believers already. Why is he praying for these believers that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith? Aren't they, haven't they already come to Christ? Yes. And Paul came amongst them and preached the gospel to them and told them that the Son of God came from heaven and went all the way to the cross. And when he was dying on the cross, he was making an atonement for the sins of all the people who will believe and trust in him. And if you are one of them, if you repent, if you believe, he will save you. He will forgive all your sins. He will take you to heaven. He will book your place in heaven. He will give you eternal life. Paul came preaching these things to them and they heard it and they believed it and they obeyed the gospel and repented and found these things true. And at that point, Christ came to dwell in their hearts by faith. So what is Paul getting at here when he's, he's praying again that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith? He's not pray, praying for reconversion, but he's praying, friends, that they may come rather to have an increased a consciousness that Christ is dear to them, that Christ is uh, near to them by faith. He wants them to have increased fellowship with Christ. And that's what the, the point that he is getting, getting to them. Yes, they have come to faith, but they need uh, more to know more of Christ and his nearness and his uh, dearness. The word here, dwell, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, means to take up permanent residence. Christ doesn't come just for one night to stay in your heart. He's not a tenant with a, who comes just with an agreement to stay for one year and then disappear or two. No, he comes to take up permanent residence in the hearts of his people. John 14, 23, you read that. If a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode uh, with him. Oh, friends, what Paul is getting at here uh, is this, that the Lord should be often on our minds, but not only on our minds, also in our hearts, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, in the place of your affections, that you may be often thinking about him. Somebody has described the affections as uh, the best room in the heart, and that's what it is. That our affections for Christ should be, uh, should be increasing more and more. Oh, friends, we mustn't, be, uh, be, we mustn't leave Christ behind. When we have, after we've done our devotions each day, and you leave the home, don't leave Christ behind. You check, isn't it, before you leave the home? Oh, have I got this? Have I got my keys? Have I got my mobile phone? You never leave the, the home without your mobile phone and all the other things maybe on, on your checklist. But is Christ one of them? Don't leave home without Christ. Don't say, I'll leave him, subconsciously leave him there. And then you go into your work, and then you come back, and then you have your evening devotions. No, friends, take him uh, with you. Take him with you. Carry the Lord 
uh, with you wherever you go. Carry him in your heart. In those spare moments of the day, think of him. Think of him. Surely you've come across something of him in your daily reading. You've picked up something. Take that thought. Hold on to it. Muse upon it throughout the day when you have those spare moments. And come and fellowship more with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know when two people fall in love? You don't, they don't need any force. You just think about your boyfriend. Think about your girlfriend. It doesn't happen that way. It's very natural. They do. They think about each other. They talk about each other. They tell everyone who's got a year to hear about, about their newfound friend. How about the Lord? Is he in our hearts? Because those people are in each other's hearts. And it's the same for us with Christ. He's in our hearts. We'll be thinking about him. He's in our affections. We'll be talking about him when we can. Oh, friends, what a savior we have. And I must uh, move on. And then the, <coughs> the next petition, the third, very briefly, is also there in verse 17, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. That is, not Christ's love to us, but our love to him and our love to the brethren and love for the lost. And here Paul prays that they may be established in love in such a way rooted like the roots of a tree, striking deep into the earth, into the ground, uh, which cannot be upturned. That's how we have to be with love, and grounded as a building is on a foundation, solid and unshakable, firm and steadfast, not up and down, steadfast in our love to the Savior and for others, but especially our love for Him, not constant friends. This is what Paul prays, Lord, may their love for Christ be constant, not hot and cold, but ever hot for him, ever fervent for him. But I really want to come to verse 18 now, and this is all about the love of Christ. And Paul wants us to have an increased knowledge of Christ's love. May, and he says in verse 18, may, that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, comprehend, to, to seize with the mind, to uh, apprehend what uh, Christ's love is. But then he says in verse 19, that's what I want to know, but, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. On the one hand, he's saying, I want you to know the length and breadth and height and depth of Christ's love. And he, on the other hand, he's saying, you can't. And what, you can't know it fully. To know the love of Christ, it passeth knowledge. And what he's saying there is, well, you can only know so much of the love of Christ. It's unsearchable, his love. You can know only a part of it, but you can never reach the ends of it. You can never reach the depths of it. You can never reach the total height of it. It is beyond measure. And he desires that uh, as these believers, after their strength, strengthening, that, that strengthening in the inner man, that love they have for Christ, well, it prepares them uh, for this greater comprehension of Christ's love uh, for them and for us. Oh, friends, here is something for all uh, believers, the love of Christ. Oh, while, <coughs> so while on the one hand, Paul is saying we cannot grasp it, here on the other, he's saying uh, that we can know it to a certain degree. There is no way we can measure these dimensions of Christ's love. Just recently, not so long ago, we had 
the sound people in here and they put the sound panels uh, up on the wall and they, the guy came in with his electronic measurements and he was able to measure the, the width and the, the, the height and the length of the, the building very easily. But you can't do that with Christ's love. You can't find out, you can't measure it. There's nothing, no device you can take to measure uh, his love. It's limitless. It's infinite, friends. Uh, it's, you cannot uh, fathom its depths. Just this last week in our Bible study, we were thinking a little bit, Genesis chapter 1, about space. And uh, when you look up at space, maybe this is one of the reasons why God made such, a, such a, uh, an environment for us. But when you look up at space, it's so vast, it's so enormous. Who can, who can measure it? To us, from our point of view, when we look up, it seems infinite. We don't know where it starts. We don't know where it ends. Of course, God knows. It's not infinite to him. But to us, that's what it's like. And that's what the Lord's love. You, cannot, you don't know where it begins and where it ends. It's like a sea without a shore. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Well, let's try and say just a few things that we know. So we can know it to a certain degree, but we can never know it in its, its fullness. But let's try a little bit, friends. The breath of Christ's love. Well, that speaks of how he embraces people from all over the world. Not just Jews. It was never ever, ever meant to be only Jews. It was always open to all. But now it's even more pronounced Christ's love is seen in embracing people from all tribes and tongues and nations. Whoever you are, whatever color we are, all are, all are uh, in Christ has embraced all, touched so many people with his love. We think of that wide invitation of Christ. Come unto me, whosoever will, let him come unto me and drink. Whosoever, again and again, he kept saying, no one is restricted. It was a wide invitation. You can think of the wideness in, this, in terms of the kinds of people who come. Different kinds. Some people uh, maybe who have been terrible sinners. The worst of worst. And yet grace has reached those kinds of people as well as maybe others who have grown up in the church and have come a different way. All different kinds of oh, the breath of uh, his love. All that concerns us. He's not just interested in our souls. He's also interested in our bodies. He's interested in every part of our, our lives as individuals. This is the love of Christ. Everything uh, comes under his concern. Everything about us as his people is important to him. We think of the length, too, of Christ's love, the duration of his love. When did it begin, friends? When did Christ begin to love you? When you became a Christian? When you bowed the knee to him? No. Was it when you were, when he, you were born? He set his love upon you? No. Oh, we have to go all the way back to eternity. To eternity past. Uh, God's love is an eternal love. It began in eternity. C.H. Spurgeon said this. <laughs> Listen to this. Christ has thought upon his people as long as he has existed. Read that again. Christ has thought upon his people as long as he has existed. As long as Christ has existed, 
So also has, that thought about you has been in his mind. What a thought. What a thought, friends, the length of Christ. But will it stop? What about the future going forward? Will it stop if I fall away from him or if I backslide? Will, his lo- will he stop loving me? No, if I'm truly his child, he will go on loving me to the end. And even into all eternity, that, that love of Christ will never be removed from me. For that final age, that endless time where we shall all be ushered into heaven, the love of Christ is there for us. It is an eternal love. He saves today and he saves for forever. The depths of his love, friends. Some have gone down, as we know, into the depths of sin. What can help? Is there any hope from, for them? Yes, Christ's love. Christ's love went down. When uh, sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Christ, we think as well of the depths he went to to save us, to leave uh, heaven. That was a humbling of himself, but he did it in love. No one forced him, as we said last week. And then we think of, again of the cross, and the depths of the agony that he went through on the cross to take away his people's sins. Who can enter into these things that he, he endured for his people? Oh, friends, he sank in such a great agony, not only the physical, but the spiritual, the soul agony that he went through, and the punishment of our sins was laid upon him. Love, friends, the depths of Christ's love. We could say that even there, on the, uh, on the cross, he suffered hell for us. He, went, he never went to hell itself, but he suffered on that cross the, all the hell that we deserve. And then the height of his love, love that has lifted us up to be heirs with, with Christ, joint heirs with him. No, Lord, I don't deserve to be a joint heir with you. I don't deserve such a position, we say like with Peter. You, you alone deserve such, such honor. But Lord says, no, join tears with me. This is Christ's love. He lifts us to such a position, such a height. The height of Christ's love will be seen, especially in the future, when we come uh, into glory and forever and ever. We'll be discovering. Is there, will we fully discover? Will we fully comprehend in heaven the love of Christ? Friends, no. Forever and ever we'll be discovering, learning more, and yet still having more to learn of and to experience of the love of Christ. Oh, how wonderful it is. This love of Christ which passeth knowledge. But then finally, and just briefly, we see the fifth petition also there in verse 19, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a wonderful statement, and we don't have time really to go into it. Uh, in full, but that you might be full. Not that you might become divine. That will never be. That's not what it's saying. And yet, it's saying that we shall be, as Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. That we might be filled uh, with uh, those communicable attributes of God, which uh, He has already planted within us. But His love, His goodness, His mercy, oh, that we may be full of these things, his, his truthfulness, his wisdom. In this sense, Paul concludes that we should be praised, that we might be filled with these attributes of God that resemble 
are our gods. And not deity, not gods, but resembling him in a full way. Well, friends, I conclude with this. This is Paul's prayer. How do we pray for one another? How do we pray for each other? You know, it's easy sometimes to pray when somebody is ill, somebody has a problem, somebody's going through a trial. We, can, we know what to pray for for those people, but sometimes other brethren, well, we get a bit stuck. And sometimes we end up saying, well, Lord, bless that person. And uh, that's as far as we go. But look here, Paul gives us some guidance how we can pray for one another. Pray, Lord, strengthen that brother, strengthen that sister. May they know uh, Christ in a deeper way. May they know his love in a greater way. May they be able to comprehend his love. May they be kept and rooted and grounded in the faith and in love to Christ. This is all, friends, how we can pray for one another. Well, may the Lord bless these uh, words to us this morning. Let's close by singing our final hymn, uh, 585, It Passeth Knowledge That Dear Love of Thine, 585. Thank you.